Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Between 1977 and 1997, Dr. Forsher ran James Forsher Productions, a full-service media production company. Over two decades, he served as a producer, director, and writer on over 100 nationally shown programs that were carried by such networks as Discovery, A&E, PBS, and Cinemax. Over the past 14 years, Dr. Forsher has been a full-time professor in communication studies. At California State University, East Bay, he was a tenured associate professor and director of the school's broadcast journalism program. Dr. Forsher wrote, Stock footage, using archival materials to make your good film great. And Carol, I understand Dr. Forsher is published by Michael Weesey, who is also your publisher. Yes, Claire, we're both fortunate to work with Michael. Thank you for joining us. Well, um, thanks for allowing me to be here. Well, you've got the best book on archival materials that I have ever seen. Um, This is all you will ever need to find what you want, and thankfully you included the legal aspects for us, and I am impressed with the book. So I'd like to cover a lot of information on finding and using archival material, and I think let's start with defining archival materials. Okay. Well, you know, basically, a lot of people have the misconception that it's old, grainy footage, and you have to toss that out. Um, Archival material is everything that was produced a few seconds ago and going back hundreds, if not thousands of years. It's kind of everything that exists that's available to you to use in your project. So uh, that really allows one to take advantage of a lot of material and make your film or your music or your book uh, much more interesting because you have a whole world to pick from. Absolutely. Well, tell us why you wrote the book. I mean, it's just full of guidance and information, things I've never heard. I've been in the industry for many years. Um, I, um, I, I produced for 20 years, and uh, most of the films I did had a lot of archival material. Uh, when I started teaching, uh, it just became really clear to me that the students um, had no clue about this world, and then they wanted to go into media, and they wanted to go into television, and wanted to go into film, but they had no visual literacy. They had no understanding that films, TV shows, commercials, everything has archival material components, and um, you know they were kind of shooting themselves in the foot to go out to the work world and not understand this. So I wrote the book for those students uh, to kind of have like a one quick read, uh, one semester overview to allow them to go into the work world and actually be ready um, and one step ahead of other uh, students who don't understand this material. 
Absolutely. This will take them way forward on information. So in the beginning of stock footage, you tell us that archival material hunters all share the same game plan when they start their hunt. So give us this outline for the game plan. Um, basically, you're, you're looking at material you think you need. And so you start looking into the, the world. Uh, you know, there's stock footage houses, there are museums, there's uh, private collectors. There's a number of places to look. What's kind of interesting is once you start that hunt, uh, you discover much more uh, than you originally thought you needed because you weren't aware. And so people are sending you material that suddenly enriches your stories in ways you could never have imagined. And that's kind of the one-two game plan in a nutshell. Okay. Well, I like the way you created your book into four parts. So part one is what to look for. So I want to start with short films because I never, I never realized there were so many of them in public domain. What is the copyright status and the benefits of these old short films? Yeah, so the uh, first films ever made were short films. Uh, going back to the 1890s, they were 30 seconds, a minute long. Um, when features came along in the 1915-1920 period, um, to get people to the movie theaters, they would actually have bonus attractions. They were, you know, in other words, short films. And they could have been um, travelogues. They could have been uh, short uh, you know, narrative films. Um, but uh, you know, the Three Stooges, uh, Laurel and Hardy, things like that. And um, many of the studios uh, produced hundreds, if not thousands of these over the years, and they didn't renew the copyrights uh, for a variety of reasons. The studios went bankrupt. Uh, they didn't want to waste the, the money on a short film. They didn't see any financial benefit. And so film collectors come along later. They find these films. Uh, the studios have not renewed the copyrights. And it's public domain. So there's thousands of those uh, that really tell the history of Hollywood. Wow. This is wonderful to know. I never, that never dawned on me, but of course they would start with short films. Now, tell us some of the other archival sources that are available, like newsreels and television. Yeah, well, you know, television's an interesting one. Uh, there were thousands and thousands of hours of uh, programs produced. Most of them lost because they were live. Um, videotape came along in the late 50s, um, and it was relatively expensive, so only the better shows were captured. Um, before then, um, shows, if they were going to be captured, had to be captured on film, so they'd have a little like monitor set up with a uh, camera, and they would actually shoot the films. So early uh, television is kind of very raw, um, when videotape came along in the 60s and became the norm, you know, it, it, the quality was improved. Now, the issue you have to be careful about with television is, is it copyrighted? Is it not copyrighted? Um, I had the experience many years ago. I did a documentary where I used a clip from an Abbott and Costello show, and I did a Library of Congress search, and there was no um, evident copyright on the material. And it aired on Cinemax, and uh, we get a call from the... Um, a state of Abbott Costello complaining bitterly that we used one of their copyrighted uh, shows. What I learned was that um, the name of the show may not necessarily be the name of how it's copyrighted. And so we... Oh, goodness. Uh, yeah, we...
settled with them. There was no malice, and it was not a big issue. But you have to be pretty careful with television. Oh, right. You know, my son was an actor, and uh, trying to find all of his films is almost impossible because the working title is seldom the production title that they use on the film. So I can imagine, of course, that would be a problem for them. Um, Okay, so you say that people looking for archival product representing different times over the past century, they should consider advertising because that's an affordable and often well-produced source of material. And many advertisers or advertisements were never copywritten. Is that correct? Correct. Yes, and especially the older um, commercials from the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, you know, the one thing you have to be careful about with commercials is they may not be copyrighted, but you're dealing with trademark issues. So, for example, um, if you do a project and you show an Apple computer uh, and you show it in a way that doesn't make them look, uh, let's say, a, give them a positive um, you know, stance, they can come back and sue you for defamation. So, you know, it's not just copyright it's it's how it's used which is really important right then uh, yes that makes a lot of sense now how about books for archival materials yeah, it's really surprising i mean it's it's such an incredible rich source of material because you're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of years uh, and everything past 100 years is public domain um, and that's why there's been, you know, you know, if, well over a hundred Frankenstein's, for example, because um, the book's public domain. You know, you can't use the makeup that Universal used, um, but you you come up with your own version of it, and you've got, you know, a very famous character, and you can make a film about it. So, you know, books are a very rich place. You just have to find a story that is compelling, and uh, that's always the key. Yes, something compelling. All right. Now, in your book, Stock Footage, you say that newspaper and magazine content from 1600 to 1920 is considered public domain. This is wonderful for filmmakers, right? Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, you know, you've got the history of humanity for over 400 years, you know, told on a daily basis. And some of those are just, you know, you, stranger than truth type of stories. I mean, they, but they were true. They were or relatively true, depending on how you look at fake news. Um, but it was, you know, it's 400 years worth of real news, fake news, whatever you want to call it. It was reported news. And uh, it's great story material. Great story material. Right. I just saw a film called The Guilty, where uh, the man had found the producer, writer, found the idea on a YouTube just listening to a recording. So um, it, it, this is, I mean, there are so many ways to get good ideas. And this film is one of the top uh, nine uh, foreign films chosen uh, for Academy. It did make it into the top five, but it's a story that came from a, a real uh, life incident. And just to know that all of those true stories are available for you uh, is fabulous. So your newspaper and magazine content is uh, yeah, and, and again, all just like uh, with commercials, 
um, there are privacy issues. And, uh, for example, YouTube, if someone puts on a birthday party that goes awry um, and you say, oh, I'm going to do a film about this, maybe, maybe not. If you use their names and their characters, they may uh, not be happy and uh, attempt to sue you over privacy issues. So you have to kind of, you know, have a checklist when you do any of this um, archival material hunting. Uh, it's not just a question of, oh, I found it, let's use it. It's a question of finding it and can I use it. Right, and that is part, one of the parts in your book is right. the legal issues. Thank heavens, that's in there. I really like that. And I also like the last part, how to love archival material and how the part three is how to license it. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, and many of these people who are reading your book will realize that they may be sitting on what they're shooting could be archival material, right? Of course. Yeah, that's that's kind of the magic of, of the 21st century. I mean, we're living in a time where people are shooting 4K on you know $200 cameras on their smartphones, and um, if you record something that's interesting, you can make money from it. Uh, Vimeo. Um, other sources allow you to sell stock footage right from their platforms. So um, that's one kind of a cool way you could benefit from shooting something. You may not sell your film, but you may make a few hundred dollars from licensing the footage you shot. Oh, that's good to know. Um, oh, and posters in your book. You talk about posters uh, because I I saw one woman who won our film grant. She did a story about the pilots, women pilots in World War II, and she used the poster, Save a Man to Fight, mm. uh, yeah. and become a, a, a pilot yourself. So um, that was beneficial to her, and a lot of those are free, right? Correct. The, the government posters are free, and, uh-huh. um, you know, it's a lot of the uh, independent features that were done throughout the years, you can use pretty safely, um, you know, from Monogram and Republic and studios like that that really don't exist anymore. Where you have to be careful is you don't want to take a 1932 Frankenstein poster and say, God, this is really neat. I'm going to use it for my film. I'll just, you know, call it the the, uh, the brother of Frankenstein. Universal's <laughs> not going to be happy. I mean, they're going to come along and say, that's our trademark. So it's not a question of is a uh, poster copyright. Uh, the bigger issue is um, the trademark um, and what it's representing. Right. So you've got to make sure you have your attorney watching everything you do. Correct. Yeah. Or you know, if you know, if you've done it enough, you're you're pretty safe because you're you're going to err on the side of caution with every step. Um, attorneys are good, but you know they're four, three, four, five hundred dollars an hour. So you have to have the budget for most filmmakers. That's that's kind of impossible, but. You know, um, uh, it's just always good to not assume you're not going to get sued. <laughs> okay. Now, tell us about licensing from major studios and distribution companies. What uh, What are the tricks to doing that? Um, you know, major studios are, have always had a kind of a, a mixed message when it comes to licensing. Um and I, it depends on the administration. So sometimes you'll go to a studio, no problem, uh, we'll be glad to license, and it's X number of dollars. Um, and then other times you go to a studio and they'll say, 
you know, we just don't license. Good luck. And I've had that experience, uh, both experiences, throughout my life. And uh, recently I did a film. Um, I, I interviewed Gene Roddenberry for uh, um, 1985 for a documentary I was working on. And a few years ago I said, you know, I'm going to go back and I'm going to re- take that interview and make a whole film about it. So it's kind of him discussing Star Trek and how he created it. You know, I thought it was an interesting story. So I went to Paramount CBS, which owns the Star Trek TV series, and um, you know, we needed to license a minute or two. Um, I had one of the best clip clearance people in the business working for me, and it took her three months, and she said, well, good news, bad news. Well, good news, they finally... Uh, gave their permission, and the bad news is it's going to effectively come to about $30,000 a minute uh, in licensing fees and uh, talent fees, which wow. I mean, which killed the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, as most documentary filmmakers know nowadays, $30,000 for a minute of footage, um, that's more than what you'll make from a U.S. Netflix sale. Right. Well, while we're on the subject of money, what would you advise uh, filmmakers, let's say a documentary filmmaker who's making a feature doc, uh, what would you say is a beginning number they should put in for archival materials? Um, Well, it depends on the documentary. I mean, if they can structure their documentary to be contemporary, uh, as much as possible, meaning interviews and B-roll and host, um, just doing that alone will help them um, you know, measurably in terms of their budget. The second thing is find a place, uh, an archive uh, house that has a large enough collection that you can go to and say, I'm going to license 10 minutes of material or 12 minutes of material. Um, give me your best deal. And I'll give you all my business, but I need to get a great deal from you. And if you do that, you're going to end up saving 50, 60 percent, uh, maybe even more. The other thing is um, always uh, do a step deal, meaning um, I let's break it down to theatrical, uh, HBO, uh, basic cable, and and find out what the, the least expensive one is, and maybe that's the one you initially license with the step deal in place. So if you do make that HBO sale, then you'll pay them more money. But initially, if it's just like a PBS or something and that's going to be relatively affordable, you'll start off with that, which will be much less money. It could be as little as you know 1000 a minute. Um, and then if it goes theatrical, you know, it's like my – Experience with the Star Trek footage, it can go up to twenty, thirty thousand dollars a minute. Wow. Well, let me ask you this: When you are negotiating, is it better to negotiate before you get any deals in place, um, rather than to go back and say, "Well, I have a deal with HBO. What is this going to cost me?" Because they are in charge. Uh, at that time, they know they have the upper hand. Right. You always negotiate when you're making your show. So you're very before you even get a, uh, a reel of, of material to look at, you already know what they're going to be charging. Um, that's, you have to do it that way. And, you know, you, that controls your editor, too. So uh, if your editor falls in love with certain footage uh, and you have not warned the editor that's the most expensive footage, um, you know, you're, you're in trouble. Uh, I just I finished a Elvis documentary, and the producer I was working with um, 
we, he, this was overseas. It was in uh, Europe, and um, he, I don't know if it was language or he wasn't listening to me, but he fell in love with footage I told him not to, and it wasn't from my library. And when he saw the bill that they wanted to get, um, he, he, I mean, he became so angry, it was unbelievable. He wanted to kill the whole project, and it took me weeks to renegotiate the deal uh, because mm-hmm. of his falling in love with footage he shouldn't have. Right. Right. My goodness. Well, the biggest problem I see about this is most of the time uh, documentarians, they have a good subject, they've done some research, but they're not archivists, so they have no idea of what's really out there. Um, And so one of uh, my filmmakers just put up some money and said, go f- tell me what's out there. I have no idea. So find what you think would be relevant to the film for this much money. I can't, I maybe would say $10,000. This was maybe 10 years ago. And the woman came back with, like, it, it took the film on a great track. It was a 1950s film about New York. And mm-hmm. what, the, uh, what the archivist found made the film. Well, let me let me give filmmakers um, a clue of how to really do this when they get started. Um, we're lucky to live in the Internet age. Uh, they can go to a site called footage.net, and the site is built, it, it basically is um, a one-place, sh- one-shop to find all the footage you need in one area. So if you want New York 1950s, you go to footage.net, you type in, I'm looking for footage from New York 1950s. Every archive out there, and they have dozens and dozens of archives on this site, will get the request, and then they will send the filmmaker the list of what they have. So looking for footage nowadays is much easier than it ever was. Um, Literally a 10-minute Internet search, and you'll have uh, more footage than you could ever imagine. That's incredible! Oh my goodness! Yeah, so, and do they so is that expensive to do to use this footage? No, no, the, the sites no, because they all want your business. So if uh, you know you pick a site that has a lot of material need, and you'll get duplicates. I mean, you know, there's newsreel footage, and 20 archives all have the same newsreel footage. So, you know, you'll look at everything and you'll say, well, you know, this particular archive seems to have the most. We'll be able to negotiate a, a big deal with them and bring the price down, and, um, you know, that's how you proceed. But what's great is you can start writing your scripts and your research by knowing what's really out there, which is your very first step when you do a, an, archive, or an archive-based documentary. Yes, knowing what's out there is a key to writing your script. Yeah. You're right. And is it affordable? Right. Is it affordable? Right. Exactly. So in part two of your book, Stock Footage, you tell us exactly where to find stock footage, and you gave us a list of the most affordable stock footage sources. Can you share a few of these with us? Well, you know, the, my favorite in the first place most serious documentary filmmakers should always think about is the Library of Congress and the National Archives. That's the repository of all government-owned films and uh, also uh, the repository of the Library of Congress of all copyrighted films, uh, many of which have fallen into public domain. So uh, the key there is you either go there and do your own research or there are 
many, many really good uh, researchers that are based out of uh, Washington. And you just, you know, you go look and see what's out there because all you're paying there is the copying fees. So, you know, $500 an hour, but you end up with an hour's worth of wonderful footage. Um, so that's the bargain. And after that, then you go hunting for the, the private sources. Well, now, one of my filmmakers did that. She went to Washington, and her hotel bill kept running up. Uh, but And it was because it took her two weeks to do all the research and get everything yeah. she needed. And, and she was and, learning, right? She was learning. Yeah, so I mean, it's a great learning experience, but it's not cheap. And it's a lot more affordable, and I always suggest you hire a researcher. Why? Because they're there for 10, 15, 20 years. They know every file. So you're not just buying their 30 or 40 or whatever dollar an hour fee is. You're getting that experience, so you're not paying the hotel fee. You're not having to learn everything on the spot. Uh, you're getting someone that knows exactly where to find that material you need um, and get it for you. And so, yeah, it costs little, but I think in the long run you're saving a lot. Exactly. I think that's a great idea. So uh, basically, um, what, what are your three favorite places to get archival materials other than Library of Congress and National Archives? Oh, uh, You know, I've worked with, dozens of different archives over the years. I had my own archive. And so it's not so much the place, it's the footage and the deal. And that's what you're always doing. Every project's going to be different. Every project is a learning curve. And so you start from zero every time you do a new project. And you really are hoping to find the best you can get. And so in some sense, um, it's kind of like, what was the Groundhog Day, that film with Bill Murray? Um, you know, it's, it's that way with every project. You know, you just because you got a great deal with someone three years ago on one project doesn't mean they're the people to go to for this project. You really uh-huh. have to uh, have a clean slate because you're dealing with different stories. The second you're dealing with different stories, you're going to be dealing with different places that have the material you need. Didn't answer okay. your question, but it did. <laughs> All right. Well, what do you think you need before you contact an archivist, uh, and how do you know what to ask for? Let's say that you have an idea. Maybe it's a book that you're using, uh, and it, and it's back in the 1920s or 10s. And um, so what do you say to them? Just what can I find, and how much is your rate, and how do well, you start? Well, I think all filmmakers have to do – uh, really good initial due diligence in their research, meaning they've got to immerse themselves in the story and know it from top to bottom as much as possible and make a list of all the elements that they come across in their research that are things that they possibly could use in their documentary. You don't know. you know, Only 10% of all this research may end up in the documentary, but you're making that list as you're going through the research. Once you've got that list of the material you would love, you send that to the different archives. And you say, this is the material I found in my research I would love. Anything else, I would love it too. And so that is probably the best way to start any project. 
Oh, that's brilliant. Yes, you are showing them what you know will work, and they're smart enough to add on what they can find that will work. Exactly, Carol. You know, here's the yeah. thing. It drove me crazy when I ran my own um, archive house was the people who call and say, hi, I'm doing a documentary about New York. Give me whatever you got. That's <laughs> a really lazy filmmaker. That's basically a person saying, I don't want to do anything. You do it. Well, yes. it doesn't work that way. You know, it's like I can help you if you know exactly what you need because we're talking shot by shot. We're talking years. We're talking uh, clothing styles. We're talking technology. We're talking all types of issues, but I only know it if you tell me that that's what you need. Don't say, tell you know, I don't know what my show is. You let me know what my show is. That is really uh, maddening, and most archivists will immediately be turned off if someone comes to them with that which is why people really should read this book because they'll be prepared and not ruin their relationship with archives as soon as they call them. Exactly. That's very important. Well, can you give us some tips on licensing um, from distribution companies? I think we covered major studios, but what about distribution companies? Well, you know, major studios are big distribution companies. Then they have smaller distribution companies uh, where they don't have a studio and they only have a, a building. Uh, and then you have independent producers who happen to own films. Um, so you're, you're going to be surprised at who owns what. Um, sometimes it's estates where it's a lawyer that represents it for the estate. Uh, there's a lot of different sources. Um, the, the other issue you have to be concerned with is multiple clearance um, problems. So you can license a feature film from a major studio or, or a Lionsgate type of distributor. And they go, okay, fine, now you have to do the seven or was it five union clearances. So you have to also uh, license the director's guild, whoever was the director, and you have to pay every actor in the scene. That's And they have a right of refusal. So if they don't want you to use that film, you can't use it. And then there's the writers. I mean, so... Uh, you have many, many clearances for one wow. film. Yeah, and it's not just a distributor. It goes way beyond that. Okay. Well, you mentioned that private film archives specialize in rare material not found in other studios. So can you tell us something about them? Yeah, you know, my archive, uh, I always, my archive came along because every time I would do a film, I would collect, you know, 20 times as much footage just to have a lot to choose from. So in the course of doing that, I end up finding some, some real gems and uh, it's like one-of-a-kind type things. One-of-a-kind type things is wonderful because when you're watching TV, isn't the exciting shot where you look at something and say, I haven't seen that before? And you're yes. always looking for that because, you, you know, the, the shot of Elvis playing guitar and the shot of the Beatles, we've seen that dozens of times. But you're seeing... Go, uh, color footage of the Beatles, um, you know, having tea um, at home. That would be of a one-of-a-kind shot. And so when you go on your hunt, you're looking for that type of footage. Um, and I spent, you know, decades really collecting my archive, just really trying to find that rare stuff I had never seen before. And so if a collector was going to sell a 60-millimeter print, I'd go, oh, I haven't seen that one before, and I would really uh, pay whatever I could to get that particular print because I knew the value of it. 
Right. Well, so, I, I, for example, um, yes, I've got a film with Shirley Temple. It's a really horrible, too real oh. um, film from 1931-32. But what makes it interesting? It was Shirley Temple's very first film, and I mean, wow. she was probably two and a half, three years old. And you watch her, and you could see that she was taking cues, and you could see actually see her eye getting the cue, and then she would act. She's two and a half or three years old, and she's acting. And um, that's what made that film so remarkable, because it's really you saw the beginning of what would become Shirley Temple. That is a valuable piece of film, isn't it? Well, for someone doing a Shirley Temple documentary, it's it's indispensable. Um, but you know, it's you know that's what I mean by one of a kind. Just stuff that you know I may only license it once in my whole lifetime to somebody, or I may only use it once. But it it is the type of thing that makes your show. Yes, it would. Well, thank you. This is brilliant. I, I really uh, appreciate the work you did to put this book together because this is all really, this is all you're going to need if you're going into this world of archival. It gets you started, definitely. You know, it's um, as I said in the very beginning of this book, it's the book I wish I would have been able to read when I started 40 years ago. Yes, absolutely. Now, uh, tell us how people can find the book and uh, reach you. Uh, you can find the book um, on Amazon um, and just type in stock footage, and it should take you there. And um, I can be reached. Um, there's a website called Stock Footage of the Book, and you know it's, uh, I have a link there so people can contact me directly. Okay, I understand. Thank you so very much for all this information. Well, and thank for you, Carol. Your... Really appreciate it. Um, you know, chatting about this. Yes, you're quite welcome. Claire, thank you very much for hosting our show. Yes, always a pleasure. Thank you, James. Okay, we'll okay. see you both. Take thank care. You. Bye-bye. All right. Uh-huh. Bye. Okay, be well, everyone. everyone. And to our listeners, I just want to say to you, we really want to thank you. We're very, very grateful for all the donations that you have given at fromtheheartproductions.com. To support our podcast, Carol and I sincerely thank you, and we'd love to hear from you with your ideas for more shows. So share with us some topics that you would like covered, people that you would like interviewed. We're always open to your feedback, so just let us know, and please join us next week for the Art of Film Funding podcast, and be well, everyone. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. 
If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's david, R-A-I-K-L-E-N.com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.